0: Well good morning Village Church, I'm Matt, I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, If you're new with us, we're actually starting a brand new sermon series uh, for this fall this morning, and the series is called Big Questions. Big Questions, and we're going to be asking big questions about God and faith and the Bible, and we're doing this in conjunction with uh, sort of a big project we got going, a big sort of initiative we got going, partnership with Search Ministries, and we're doing Search Ministries open forum series on Sunday nights. And if you think about Search Ministries, you can think about um, sort of a, a dinner party with a purpose, so actually a really nice dinner party with a purpose. Tonight will be night two. Uh, it's being held at Eliseo Vejo Country Club, and it is catered well. And our aim is to serve people well with good food and good things, and to enjoy time being together and talking about the biggest questions that there are about God and about faith and about the Bible. Matter of fact, if you're here and, uh, and you're someone that uh, has those questions about God or faith or the Bible, you're not yet a Christian, or you might consider yourself kind of pursuing or looking into Christianity. There's flyers kind of on our back table by the book uh, shelf, and uh, there's a QR code where you can RSVP for tonight. We'd love to have you. If you're a Christian and you have all the answers, this is not for you. There's actually not an evening where you can just get a bunch of free food and then it's like say what you want about the questions. It is actually a night... Um, For other people to get uh, a lot of really great things and enjoy a bunch of great things and to have their big questions asked and to talk about them together. And I got to tell you, um, for a guy like me, last week was wonderful and it was wonderfully frustrating. Because I think there are really good answers to some of our questions, but that's not particularly what tonight is for It's an opportunity for you to talk about your questions, not just to get all the answers right away. And if that piques your curiosity and you have those questions again, we would love to have you. But for this morning over these next seven weeks, what we're doing is we're gonna try our best to answer some of these questions in part. And so the idea is to take seven of the most popular questions that are asked at a Search Open Forum series on a Sunday evening kind of venue and bring those to Sunday morning. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to talk about seven of the most common questions that people that have questions about God and faith and the Bible ask in these Open Forum series as as they've been done historically over the years. And as we do that, we're going to ground ourselves in a particular passage of Scripture. So this morning you heard read Psalm 19, and this morning Psalm 19 is going to be kind of a, a springboard or a home base for us. We're going to ground ourselves there in the Bible. We're going to come back to there over and over again. But it will be kind of a springboard to answer some of these questions, and you'll see that happening each week as these sort of questions progress, the topics come up. So we're going to have big questions, and this morning our aim is to, in part, try to answer one of those big questions, one of the first big questions. But as we think about big questions, we're also going to address some some big lies, because there are some big lies about God and the nature of God and the nature of faith and the Bible— And we've believed them in part. Many people have believed them because we are surrounded by so many lies. The world lies to us, our flesh lies to us, our enemy lies to us. The world is propagating lies all the time, we are surrounded by lies, we kind of swim in a pool of lies. Isn't that a beautiful thought this morning? Swimming in a pool of lies. There are so many things that are not true that are propagated and they're they're whispered or they're shouted to us day in and day out. The world lies to us. Our flesh lies to us. Our flesh lies to us to keep us comfortable, to keep us autonomous, to keep us feeling good. You know, when when I'm on burpee number 19 out of 20, my flesh is always telling me it's enough, right? You don't need one more. Our flesh is always telling us, stay comfortable. Feel good. Keep your autonomy. You're fine just the way you are. You don't have to worry about these big questions. And, well, and our enemy, the devil, lies to us. Jesus said he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And many of these lies can be subtle, and we can find ourselves subtly influenced by them or subtly believing them in one way, shape, or form. And so every week we're going to address some of these big lies. It's been that way from the beginning. If you know the Bible, you know that in Genesis chapter 3, um, the Bible records um, the serpent coming to the, the, the woman and to Adam and Eve. Adam is present. And the serpent says to her, you will not surely die. God has told them, you can't eat of this fruit that's in the garden or you will surely die. The enemy says, no, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And how subtle. The lie is that you will not surely die. They would surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. It's a lie. It's a subtle one. They're already created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis has already told us that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Knowing good and evil. They will know actually good and evil after this in a way they hadn't before. The lies are subtle. There's big questions and they're big lies that can kind of feel like little ones sometimes. But the hope is that there are actually bigger answers. So in the midst of every big question we might have, there are some big lies that under— line it. We'll address some of those, but more importantly, we're going to look at the bigger answers that the Bible gives us about these things. So the first big question that we're going to address this morning is sort of starting where we would start as a Christians is with the Bible. Should the Bible really be trusted? Should the Bible really be trusted? That's a question that a lot of people are asking today. Google that when you get home and see how many pages of answers come up. Spoiler alert, don't trust them all, okay? <laughs> we'll give you some good resources. But as Christians we believe that the Bible should be trusted in everything and for everything. If you're a Christian, you know that the Bible says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God that the Christian might be might be complete equipped for every good work. And as Christians we believe this by faith, but it's not a faith that's solely or mainly based on feelings. Like we just feel good when we read the Bible or we just feel like it's right or we feel like it's true. We, we have a faith that's grounded mostly and mainly in, in facts that are tangible and that can be trusted. And so this morning, we're going to talk about some of those facts beginning with the Bible. Should the Bible really be trusted? And in my mind, there are a lot of questions that underlie this question, right? That's a big question. It is the sermon title, series title, Big Questions. But maybe if you have um, a teenager that came and asked you uh, like a big question, you would say, okay, well, do we have some time? Because there's a lot of questions that underlie that question. If if you were struggling with something in your life and you went to see a counselor and you said, my big question is this, the counselor might respond and say, well, (laughs) it's going to take us a few weeks because there's a lot of questions that are underlying that big question. And the same is true here. Should the Bible really be trusted? That is a big question. And, and I wrote down at least 20 to 25 questions this week that could underlie that big question. We don't have time for that this morning, but I'm going to do my best to walk us through seven of them. Seven questions that sort of underlie that bigger question, should the Bible really be trusted? I'm going to start with the first one is, can the Bible really be trusted forensically, like other works of antiquity? The Bible's an old book. It's an ancient book. It's a book of antiquity, and can it be trusted forensically? Is it evident? Is there evidence? When we examine it in, in its earliest manuscripts, is it going to hold up? It's an old book. How can it hold up for for new days? And the lie is that the Bible doesn't have the same reliability as other works of antiquity. And this work has been this has been propagated over and over again by junior, you know, college professors on down the down the line, and it's just simply not true. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a while, you know this. If you've been an apprentice, you've seen this chart. If you haven't and you don't know this, um, next year when Pastor Matt Bowman is going through Apprentice and we invite you to the sections on the reliability of Scripture, you should come. It's, it's, it's two weeks. It's, it's, you know, 90 minutes twice a week or twice, uh, twice in a row on, on this topic, the reliability of Scripture. I only have a few minutes here this morning, but you'll see this chart that actually looks at the bible and compares it to other works of antiquity like forensically how does it measure up we'll look at things like homer and the iliad maybe you've read that or portions of it between the date it's written and its earliest copies we've got 500 years 643 copies that seems like a lot but then we go to julius caesar we've got a thousand years between when it was written and the earliest copies we only have 10 of those tacitus we've got a hundred you know, it's, again, a thousand-year difference, and we've got 20 copies. Plato, probably heard of him, right? We've got 1,200 years and 250 copies. But when we look at the New Testament, it just dwarfs all of that. Less than 100 years from the date it was written and the earliest copies, we have 5,600 manuscripts. That's just the Greek ones. We've got 10,000 Latin manuscripts. We've got other, over 9,000 manuscripts in other ancient languages. We have over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, of the Bible you hold in your hand. And I know some of you are thinking, well, what about the variants and how many variants? And we don't have time for all of this tonight. What I can tell you about, or this morning, what I can tell you this morning is, is none of those are meaningful to the doctrine or the practice of Christians. They're small things. And again, if you would come to Apprentice, we'd have many minutes to explain it all. This morning, I'm saying the Bible is reliable. It's forensically reliable, much more, exponentially almost even more, than other works of antiquity. The New Testament, by the way, is the most well-attested ancient document there is. So if you hold up your Bible right now, and you've got a, a, a translation of the Bible, it was, it was passed down, it was translated through a process, but the original manuscripts that inspired it were behind that translation, they're the most reliable ancient manuscripts in the history of the world. And I want to tell you, it's not even close. It's not even close. The Bible can be trusted forensically, It's the most trusted ancient book that there is. And so our text this morning said, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's complete. It's reliable. And that revives the soul. And I hope that hearing that revives your soul in some way this morning. It encourages your soul in some way this morning. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That the things we have, we have sure and good evidence for. Well, maybe you might say, well, okay, I can see how the Bible could be trusted forensically, or maybe someone that you know would say something like this, but they say, but can the Bible really be trusted internally when it contradicts itself so often? You might have heard this on, a, on The View or some other talk show or read it in a blog or on a newspaper article or some other thing that comes up in your feed. But the Bible can't really be trusted internally because there are so many contradictions in it, and the lie is that the Bible has too many contradictions to be trusted The first thing I want to say this morning is a part of the simple answer to this question is there is a difference between contradictions and paradoxes, and the Bible is full of paradoxes because the Bible uses comparison and contrast all the time. But there's a difference between a contradiction and a paradox, and many times people will look at the Bible and say it has contradictions and those are actually paradoxes. I made a slide for you just to kind of highlight what a contradiction is. It's these statements or ideas or features that are actually opposed to one another. They are actually contradictory statements. But a paradox is something that, well, seemingly could be in opposition to one another, statements that can be or propositions that can be seemingly in opposition to one another. But you study them, you put them in their context, you bring them together, you investigate them. And oftentimes a paradox has a very, very good explanation. And again, um, in this category, the Bible sort of filled with these sorts of things because, again, it uses contrast a lot, lots of paradoxes, no contradictions. If you went home today and you googled contradictions in the Bible, you're going to find a list of all kinds of things that are kind of little, actually, ticky-tack things, it feels like. So I just wanted to go straight to the top and go to the biggest apparent contradiction in the Bible. I actually wrote a paper about it in um, seminary because it was the biggest apparent contradiction in the Bible— And so I wanted to address that biggest apparent contradiction and kind of get my legs surrounding it. And the contradiction is maybe what you think it is. If you're a Christian, you know maybe what it is. And it's at the highest level because it deals with what it actually means to be justified before God. The Bible says that we don't justify ourselves by the things that we do, but by what God's done for us. If you're not yet a Christian, that's what we believe. As Christians, we don't believe we're justified morally or spiritually before God because of what we do. We're justified spiritually before God because of what Jesus has done for us. And yet in the Bible, there is, well, an apparent contradiction between James and Paul. James says it this way in James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And yet the sort of cursory reading of Romans 3.28 would say, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And Those things seem apparently to contradict one another i think they're a bit more of a paradox because we read the bible we're always taking things in context and one of these verses deals more in context with justification before god and one of them deals a bit more with justification before people like that way we prove that our faith is real one of them has to do with the root of our salvation and one of them has to do with more of the fruit of our salvation the way that has that worked out no contradiction here And when we study the Bible, we keep in mind what theologians call the law of non-contradiction. And James Montgomery Boyce, a theologian pastor, explains it this way. If the Bible is truly from God, and if God is a God of truth, and he is, then if two parts seem to be in opposition or in contradiction to each other, our interpretation of one or both of these parts must be in error. And oftentimes, an elementary reading of some parts of the Bible, even two verses in the Bible like this one, could be read by someone that doesn't have a lot of experience with it and can say, oh, there we go. There's the contradiction. It's right there. And it's at the top of the list in terms of what Christians claim they believe about how we're justified before God. And yet below the surface, there's so much more that's there. In context, there's so much more that's there. Maybe it's not what the Word of God says, but how we're seeing that or how we're applying that. That's always the case. The Bible can be internally trusted and it, and it can be trusted to be free from any real contradictions if, even if there are some apparent ones. And again, this morning in our text, the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and it makes wise the simple. You might say, okay, okay, we're walking through this fast, and i got to tell you, my aim is to give you seven categories, and our aim is to provide you resources between Sundays, and we don't have a lot of time. Each one of these questions could be an entire morning. I'm trying this morning to give you seven categories, and you think through the first two and saying, okay, okay, maybe, maybe the Bible is forensically reliable, and maybe we can trust it <clears throat> to even be internally reliable, but, but can the Bible really be trusted historically? I mean, isn't the Bible really more of a moral book than a historical book? Isn't it a book that's meant to help people morally, not really be reliable historically? I mean, maybe it's reliable in in the way it recorded, what it recorded, but is it actually reliable historically in what it recorded? Is it actually historically reliable in that way? I think the big lie on this is that the Bible is a moral book filled with stories that are meant to teach moral lessons, but it isn't really meant to be trusted historically. You ever hear that one? It's not really meant to be trusted historically. And as Christians, we have uh, actually a faith that's actually built around history because, well, it's proven itself out in the midst of human history. We have a faith that's actually so grounded in history that the history behind it is not true. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith isn't even true. The Bible is trusted historically. Matter of fact, two of the greatest 20th century archaeologists, you could call an archaeologist a scientific historian, One of them is a name that will ring familiar to many of you, William Albright, and there are many, many others that claim that the Bible is actually the most accurate source to document human history. They're non-Christians, they're secular in their worldview, but even people like Albright are saying the Bible is the most reliable source document in human history. We trust it more than we trust anything else as we look at archaeology. We're not Christians, we don't have a biblical worldview, but we trust the Bible historically. And again, if you go home this morning, you can Google the top 10 historical finds of 2022. The top 10 historical finds of 2021. The top 10 historical geographical finds of 2020. And go on 19 and 18 and on down the line. It will blow your mind to find that Every year, we're finding more and more evidence that the Bible is historically true the way it says it is, that archaeologists are using the Bible to find things in history all the time, so much so that there are top 10 lists that will blow your mind if you read through them. The most popular one is is an old one you've probably heard before, but I bring it up this morning because it is kind of the most popular one, and it actually is very important you probably heard the discovery of the pilot Stone back in 1960, 1961. I believe It was in Philipp, um, um, Caesarea, Maritime Caesarea. There was an archaeologist um, who discovered this stone. And um, the stone was actually used as a step in a small staircase. Sometimes when um, things would be destroyed in, in human history, right, like in the midst of uh, different eras of history, they, they would take resources and put them elsewhere. And this was a stone that wasn't meant to be a step, but it was a step in a little stairwell. And archaeologists discovered it and uncovered it and dusted it off and used all their processes. And when they did, they discovered that it was a stone that highlighted Pontius Pilate. And if you look at it here, you can see the first, the second, the third, and the fourth lines. And the first line of the writing is the name of the temple, Tiberium, named after the emperor Tiberius. Line two gives the name of who it was dedicated to, Pontius Pilate. The third gives his title, Prefect of Judea, and the fourth line is not readable. Many historians think it's likely um, indicating that he dedicated this temple, but for a long time, historians said like, well, the New Testament can't be trusted because we don't even know that Pontius Pilate existed. There wasn't any role called the, 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 the prefect of this area. And then lo and behold, we find in a small stairwell somewhere that actually there was a man named Pontius Pilate. And actually he was the prefect of this area. And actually he did dedicate this temple. And I could go on and on all morning about all the archeological finds. This one, one of the most popular. But what I will say for the moment too is that there's a difference between human history and redemptive history. And if you love history, some of you are like history buffs. Langdon's not here this morning, he's a history buff. If you're a history buff, connect to Pastor Mike. Some of you are history buffs, you love history. And what I wanna say to you is that the Bible isn't concerned necessarily with all of history. The Bible's not even necessarily concerned with all of Middle Eastern history. What the Bible is mainly concerned with is redemptive history. It's mainly concerned with God's work in human history to redeem men and women and to invite them to himself. But as the Bible does this, it's actually 100% accurate in all of the history that it does record. Again, so much so that the leading archeologists are saying, we're not Christians, we don't have a Christian worldview, but we love the Bible because it helps us to find really cool stuff. The Bible is very trusted historically in all of the history that it records. Again, the law of the Lord is perfect, and the testimony of the Lord is sure. And say, okay, well, maybe the Bible can be trusted forensically. Maybe it can be trusted internally. Maybe there's not a bunch of contradictions. Maybe there's more paradoxes. Maybe the Bible can be trusted historically. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that actually secular non-Christian archaeologists use it to find all kinds of cool stuff. I want to look that up. That's pretty neat. But... But can the Bible really be trusted scientifically, right? Come on. I mean, we're supposed to trust the science, right? How to do a little COVID throwback, sorry. Supposed to trust the science. So how can we trust the Bible if it's not scientific? Like I trust scientific things. So how can we trust the Bible if it's not really scientific? And the big lie here is that the Bible is more anti-science than pro-science. I think the big lie is that the Bible can't be validated by science. To that, firstly, I would simply say literary forensics, what we talked about firstly this morning, that actually is a science. And hermeneutics and textual criticism, which we talked about just a few minutes ago, that actually is a science. And archaeology um, that validates history, that's actually a science. This is all kinds of science that actually validates the Bible. The Bible actually never claims to be a science textbook but it does claim to be truthful in all the things that it talks about including scientific things so if the bible makes a reference to anything scientific it's going to be true and it's going to be right and it's going to be sure and it's going to be reliable and it's going to be trustworthy the bible can be true and trust the bible is true and can be trusted on all of the scientific assertions that it makes the bible is accurate in what it asserts about science let me just go through a few categories this morning quickly The Bible is accurate in what it asserts about astronomy. The Bible is accurate in what it asserts about astronomy. For over 2,000 years, scientists missed or they rejected the idea that the universe was expanding. If you study science, you know that scientists originally believed that actually the universe was static, that it was not expanding, it was not growing. It was a steady state model. But Hubble actually disproved this. Hubble was the first one to say, no, 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 there's a constant in terms of the expanding rate of the universe. We see the universe expanding, and there's a constant rate at which it is expanding. And so it had to have a beginning, and we call that the big what? We call that the Big Bang. That's what, that's what humans call the Big Bang, that it had to have a beginning because it is expanding at a constant rate. And more recently, NASA's James Webb Telescope, it, it confirmed this idea yet again, but but at a greater scale than we've ever seen before. It went further back. It sees further expansion of the universe in greater detail than we've ever seen before. And NASA is now telling us what the Bible told us all along, (laughs) that in the beginning, God. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That there wasn't a big bang in the beginning per se, there was a big God. And if it was a big bang, it was because the Bible said God spoke it into existence. And that the universe does have a beginning and there is a creator behind the creation. There is an intelligent designer behind the design that it all began and it is expanding. And the Bible speaks of it this way when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Even as we read this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We see things that are true about astronomy through the things that the Bible teaches us. The Bible is accurate in what it asserts about biology. 19th century biologists argued that, that animals evolved from actually very different animal forms. But the Bible says that that's not true. In Genesis 1:24, the Bible says, "'Let the earth bring forth living creatures.' God said, "'According to their kinds, "'livestock, creeping things, even beasts of the field, "'according to their kinds,' and it was so. "'God, from the beginning, inspired the Bible to be written "'in such a way that it was accurate biologically that we know animals produce animals reproduce rather after their own kind the bible's been telling us that for a very long time the bible is is accurate in what it asserts about biology the bible's accurate in what it asserts about anthropology about us as people again 19th century anthropologists believe that the different races descended from different places the bible claims that all humans descended from one man and from one woman that there is only one human race. And come to find out that at the end of the day, that is true. God blessed him and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That all of the, the people on the earth, they, they came from one man and one woman. There's one united human race. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, is what Paul says in Acts 17. And the Bible is even accurate in terms of what it says about geology. And I just want to give you, you know, youth group students a little, I want to do you a favor this morning and just tell you, if you're looking for a really easy elective to take, just sign up for geology, right? Is that true? You sign up for geology. If you need a really easy science elective, just sign up for geology. But geology actually is a science. And the Bible is accurate about what it says about it. Again, 19th century geologists argued that the rock layers that we have and the sediments and the fossils that are in them, that they they actually got got placed there at a, a, a very slow rate, that the sediment was deposited very, very slowly. There wasn't some big cataclysmic sort of idea or um, incident, rather, that, that caused that. But today, geology, geology confirms that, no, that didn't happen slowly. It happened actually very fast. It was deposited kind of catastrophically. And the fossils that are in those sediments were 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 are placed there in, in seconds or minutes, and the Bible calls this the flood. <laughs> you know, when the Bible records the flood, it says that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. We know that there is so much water underneath the surface of the earth, it's not even funny. And the windows of the heavens were open and rain fell upon all the earth. And as Christians, we look at places like the Grand Canyon or the great fissures that are over the deepest parts of the ocean as just kind of evidence that, yeah, that's what happened. It all—water burst up from the, the beneath, water rained down from above. And, and in the matter of minutes and, and hours, these things happen, not in seconds, not, not over long, extended periods of time. The Bible can be trusted scientifically— in the scientific things that it references and in the way science can be applied to it. In our passage this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above declares his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God is saying something to us. When we look through the lens of science, when we look at things scientifically, the Bible is not afraid of that. The Bible is not anti-science. The Bible is not dissuaded by science. Scientists use the Bible. The Bible can be trusted in the things it talks about when it talks about things scientifically. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. The Bible's screaming these things to us. I say, okay, well, even though it's not a science textbook, it can still be trusted scientifically about what it asserts about science. Okay, okay, I get it. But isn't it really more of a moral book anyway? I mean, can the Bible really be trusted morally? when it's been used for moral evil. I mean, and you might talk to a friend who, who goes down this line of reasoning, and maybe this is a line of reasoning in your own mind. And as pastors, we're not, not so naive as, as to believe that there aren't people and partners or tenders in our church that even have some of these same questions, like, is the Bible forensically reliable? Is it internally reliable? Are there errors in it? Is it historically reliable? Is it scientifically reliable? I think we're getting, kind of getting down to a place where we're more on sort of the same page we're saying is the bible morally reliable but maybe in the back of your mind someone's asked you this question can the bible really be trusted morally because it's actually been used for some moral evil the lie here is that the bible has been used for instances of moral evil so it must be morally corrupt anything that's used for moral evil must be morally corrupt and as christians i think we have to be honest we have to be honest to say that there are some people and we might even say even many people that have used the Bible for moral evil. We might even say, actually, that happens likely every day. That happens every day all around the world that actually people use the Bible for moral evil. But it doesn't mean that it is morally evil. It means that we are. It doesn't mean that it is morally evil. It means that we are. Many people say, well, the Bible is used for moral evil, and so that's a smoking gun. That's a smoking gun that shows us that actually the Bible is— is morally evil, not morally good. And I would say that's actually not a smoking gun because even a gun is not morally evil. Even a gun is not morally evil. Even a gun is not morally evil because people use it to kill innocent people instead of animals for food to feed their families. And the Bible is exponentially less morally neutral than a gun. And I wanna tell you this morning that the data actually proves it in the back wall, you'll see um, some books we've recommended for this sermon series. And um, on that wall, you'll see a book called Confronting Christianity. Catchy title, don't you think? Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. You can see it recommended on the Gospel Coalition. And there's a chapter in there um, entitled, Aren't We Better Off Without Religion? It talks about this idea of, aren't we better off without, morally without religion? And in that chapter, if you read it, she cites a couple of studies and where they talk about this idea that there are hundreds of studies, actually, that link religious participation to better moral outcomes in societies. And in particular, those who attend church, and in particular, those who attend church more than once a week or twice a week. So if you're here on Sunday and you're in community group, these statistics apply to all of you. Exponentially better moral outcomes with all kinds of things. And the studies, um, they talked about all kinds of moral outcomes, everything from as simple as volunteerism to generosity, all the way down the line to things like um, domestic violence and the things of the like. The data actually proves this. But even though the Bible is morally, is, even though the idea that the Bible is morally corrupt and it has been used for moral evil is actually philosophical because it has been used for some moral evil is actually philosophical, philosophically illogical in some way. Um, and it's also wrong statistically. Making a statement like this, that the, the Bible is morally evil because it's been used for moral evil, assumes that there's some kind of objective standard for good and evil, which the Bible actually claims it is. Asking a question like that claims that there's actually an objective standard for moral good and moral evil. And the Bible says, yeah, it is it. We started this morning by pointing to 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures breathed out by God as profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible claims that it is the thing that equips us for righteousness or right living, for training in righteousness. It is the thing, the perfect place for us to find that training, in righteousness, but Jesus also claims that the Bible is the objective standard for truth and moral good. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, says, sanctify them by, in your truth, your word is truth, and by your word is truth, Jesus is is referring to the Old Testament of the Bible and saying, these things that are in the Old Testament can be used to sanctify, meaning to set your people apart, to make them more like yourself, to make them look more like you. The word of God does that. Jesus himself said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to set aside all the things that were laid out in the old Testament as a moral law. I've come actually not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus claims that he's actually the fulfillment of those things. So if Jesus affirms the Bible as objective standard of truth and moral good. And if the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus, and it is, The question, how can we trust the Bible morally, is really, the question really is, how can we trust Jesus morally? How can we trust Jesus morally? And I want to tell you that more people have trusted Jesus to not only be morally good, but morally perfect than any other person in the history of the world. And Jesus said the point of his life was to live with a perfect moral standard from God. From the God of the Bible, and he did. The Bible can be trusted morally because Jesus can be trusted morally. And our passage this morning says as much. Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true, And they're righteous altogether. And I say, okay, well, maybe the Bible can be trusted morally, but you're Christian, so isn't the point of the Bible more than morality? Isn't the Bible more of a spiritual book than a moral book? Question six is, can we really trust the Bible spiritually when there are so many other spiritual books out there in the world and I think the lie here is that there are countless spiritual books in the world and the Bible is not better or worse than any of them. There are all kinds of books that talk about spirituality, that speak to guide different people spiritually. What makes the Bible different? Why should we trust the Bible spiritually? I think the Bible can be trusted spiritually in part, in part because it can also be trusted forensically and internally and historically and scientifically and morally. We can trust the Bible spiritually in part because we can trust it all of these other ways. That we can trust the Bible spiritually because we can trust it objectively. We can trust the Bible spiritually because we can trust it objectively. I said earlier on that we don't have a faith as Christians that's a faith based mainly or solely on feelings but there are facts behind the things that we believe. There are objective truths that we can point to, objective realities that we can point to. And we can trust the Bible spiritually in part because we can trust it objectively. And as Christians, we don't have a a nebulous sort of ethereal spirituality. We have a, a spirituality that's actually grounded. It's grounded in history, it's grounded in facts. And I would say as Christians, we have a reasonable spirituality. We have a reasonable faith, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. But could I give you the biggest reason in my mind this morning? This is the biggest reason in my mind as one of your pastors. There's all kinds of reasons we should trust the Bible spiritually, but the biggest reason in my mind is that the Bible is the only spiritual book that offers a truly spiritual solution to our spiritual problem instead of an anthropological solution to our spiritual problem. Let me say that again. The Bible is the only spiritual book that offers a spiritual solution to our spiritual problem instead of an anthropological solution to our spiritual problem. Maybe to say it more simply, I would say it this way. The Bible is the only spiritual book that claims we can't and don't solve our spiritual problem ourselves, but that God has solved it for us. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that that I believe is the main reason that we believe we can trust the Bible spiritually. It is the only quote unquote spiritual book that claims that we as people can't and we don't solve our spiritual problem ourselves, but that God has solved it for us. And this is what Christians believe, that we were created in the image and likeness of God. We referenced that back in Genesis. That we were created in his image like this with dignity and value and worth but we rebelled against god we sinned against god and sin came into the world and it broke our relationship with god and one another and now we're separated from god from a holy god and sin ruins our life and our relationship with god and it ruins our life and our relationship with another and it breaks all the systems and the structures in the world but the bible teaches that god wasn't content to leave us that way in that spiritual separation from god that is the problem but that God would come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that God actually entered human history. As Christians, we have to believe it's historical because we believe that God entered human history in the person of Jesus Christ and that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life before God on our behalf. Sin, the thing that separated us from God, Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfectly sinless life before God on our behalf. And then he died on the cross and in our place and for our sins. He actually took the penalty for sin that we deserve on himself. And he rose from death to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a life that's free and forgiven. Jesus proved through his resurrection that he was who he said he was, that God actually came in human flesh to solve a spiritual problem that we could never solve ourselves. Only the Bible teaches that. I believe that's why as Christians, we believe that we can trust the Bible spiritually. The Bible and only the Bible, I believe, for this reason, can be trusted spiritually because it's the only professing spiritual book that offers a spiritual and again not an anthropological not a humanistic not a religious answer to our greatest spiritual problem and our text this morning actually highlights that psalm 19 who can discern his heirs we have heirs don't we oh we have a lot of them what do you do with them declare me innocent from hidden faults we need god to declare us innocent Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. We get mixed up in presumptuous sins all the time. Don't we? Let not them have dominion over me. I don't want to be bound by those things. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Only God can cover our sins, and we need him to cover our sins. Only he can declare us innocent. Only he can solve our spiritual problem, and he did, in and through the person and the work of Jesus. Last question this morning. Okay, okay even if even if that's true <laughs> is that true for me like can can i can i trust the bible personally like is it really for me i think the lie here this morning is that the bible is good for some people but not for all people and i don't want to tell you that the bible has been trusted by more people in more places in more places and stages of life than any other book in the history of the world I just want to see you want you to see a map very quickly this morning, and this is does not tell the whole story, but it just, I just want to give you a video of a, a visual, and I just want to tell you, purple equals Christianity, okay? Just quite simply, purple equals Christianity, like in terms of the world religions and where they are. Every other world religion is sort of, sort of, for the most part, placed in a geographical location, but not Christianity. Christianity is all over the world, and even in those places where there are different covers, there are a lot of Christians in some of those places. It's just not the majority Christian. It's not the majority faith in those places. But I just want you to see that the Christianity is, is for all kinds of people in all kinds of places, in all kinds of cultures that have all different color skins and speak different languages and have different cultural customs and things that they do. You might say, okay, I get it, but where am I? Like if you were to zoom in on that map and go to North America and we get Baja and California and we kind of keep zooming in and as you zoom in and zoom in, at some point, like I'm this little tiny pin. Where am I? I want to say, God sees you in the midst of all the purple sea there. If you're a Christian this morning, I just want to ask you, have you found that you can trust the Bible personally? Like if you're asking, where am I? Have you found that you can actually trust this? That you can actually trust that all Scripture is breathed out by God because you've seen it to be profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness in your life? If you're a Christian this morning, haven't you found what the psalmist found in Psalm 19? That the Bible is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold? that it's sweeter than honey and dripping from the honeycomb? By them, your servant is warned. Haven't you found that in keeping them, there's great war, that as you obey and follow the Bible, haven't you found that life is better, your marriage is better, your relationships are better, your work is more fruitful, productive? Haven't you found that you're a better neighbor, you're a better citizen? Haven't you found that everything just goes well when you obey the Bible? If you're not yet a Christian this morning, you might be thinking, well, I don't know how I could do that. You guys seem like maybe you're moral people and I'm like a very immoral person. I wanna tell you that's not true at all. The Bible is more than a moral book because we, are all, we all fail morally. It's a spiritual book, it's a spiritual problem, not a moral problem. We're all immoral, Jesus is the only one who's moral and perfectly moral. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, I want you to know that in Romans chapter 10, it says this, and this applies to you, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your background is. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him for everyone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And a few verses later, it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. If you're not yet a Christian this morning and, and you haven't placed your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, but you're hearing the word of God, you're hearing these scriptures, you're hearing these things this morning, and you sense God's drawing you to himself so that you too believe, you can believe this morning, anyone, anyone all over the world, millions, tens of millions of people all over the world, And that can be true for you this morning as well. The Bible can be trusted personally, and Jesus can be trusted personally by anyone. And that's why the Psalm 19 ends with these words Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer is for you. The Word of God is for you, and He is for you. Jesus is for you. And that's the good news this morning, is that we can trust the Bible because we can trust Jesus, because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I hope this morning you see at least seven reasons why you can trust the Bible. I'm telling you, there's 20 more. There's more than that. These are the ones that I could share this morning. I hope they're an encouragement to you. I hope they do help to revive your soul in some way this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord we thank you that you've given us your word and that it's reliable that it can be trusted and that you can be trusted we thank you for giving us a faith that's not just solely or mainly based on feelings but on facts that are objective things that we can point to it is faith to be sure Lord we trust you by faith and we thank you that we have a faith that's grounded in objective realities thank you for the hope Thank you for the assurance. Thank you for the confidence that you give us this morning. We pray that we can respond to you in that confidence, and we ask it in Jesus' name.